Okay, so welcome back. We did have a two week break. So um, it always feels like so long. Um, so we are going to dive right back in. We're on chapter 22. And I just, before we get started, I want to remind you the section that we're in and what we're trying to accomplish in the bigger picture. And then we went on off on a couple tangents. So chapter 18 is where we started talking about how um, we want to, if we wanted to have an emotional feeling to God, but we don't have enough time to meditate, right? Till then we were working on our minds and getting our minds to match up with our emotions through meditation. We didn't, we didn't learn in detail really how to meditate and what to meditate about, but we did learn that that's really what we do. We meditate on the greatness of God to create an emotion, right? But that takes a long time. And what happens if we're in a situation where we need to create that emotion for Hashem instantly? So that is what chapter 18 through 25 um, talks about. And we start off by saying that we have an inheritance from our forefathers called this latent love, Ahava Musuteras, which every person has. And we are able to employ that love in moments of extreme duress and when our soul feels like it's going to be cut off from God, it's life or death, then that latent love pops up and allows us to stay connected to Hashem. But what we want to understand is, okay, well, what we understand that if it's in a life or death situation uh, or our soul perceives that it's going to be cut off from, from God in an extreme way, then that works. But what happens in our day-to-day -day life? When, and, and the Tanya is saying that this love can be employed in our day-to-day -day life. So how does that happen? And that's where we are kind of exploring right now. We went on, a, on we talked about a, many different things, but right now what we're talking about is the, 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 the non-duality of God that there, there, there's, there, nothing exists outside of God, okay? And that's kind of where we're focused now. We are going to bring it all back together. We are going to have answers to all our questions, but right now we're kind of in the thick of it, okay? So in chapter 20, we learned um, that from the Zohar, that the first two commandments of the 10 commandments kind of encompass the whole Torah. The first commandment, which is, I am your God, right? Uh, that includes all the 248 positive commandments, okay? The second commandment, which is, you shall not have other gods, right? It's more of the negative. You, you should not serve other gods. That includes all the 365 um, prohibition, prohibitions, okay? In chapter 21, we, exp we explained the deeper meaning of I am your God, right? And we delved into how uh, Hashem is the only existence, nothing exists outside of him, and the non-duality nature of the world through the lens of I am your God, right? In, in this chapter, chapter 22, we're going to do the same thing, but through the lens of the second um commandment, which is do not have other gods. We're going to explore that through the lens of, of the non-duality experience. Okay. So last, I'm not going to say last week, but last chapter, we learned about that through the first commandment 
And now we're going to go and delve into the second commandment a little bit more and explain it through the concept of the non-duality. Okay. So we're going, we're going to be using the metaphor of speech again. Do you remember we talked about the metaphor of speech, right? Um, which we used in the last two ch chapters. And just a reminder, when the Torah speaks about Hashem, right, we, we, we talked about the fact that we're using, we're, like we're using, um, we're talking about Hashem like anthropomorphically, right? Using our physical terms, but applying them to Hashem, right? So even though divine speech is not the same as, uh, as physical speech, as human speech, there is still a very important similarity, which is why we use that metaphor. And the similarity is, is expression, right? When you are speaking, you are expressing something that was previously hidden, previously not exposed, right? So same too for God, when he's using speech to create the world, it is just telling us that Hashem is now revealing something from inside of himself that was previously non-existent. And that's why we use the metaphor of speech, okay? So I wanna read, and, and that's why in Torah we hear so much, God's right hand, right? And God's face. And are we saying that God has hands and faces and, and fingers? No, God forbid, we're not saying that at all. But what we are saying is that we are using the similarity of how we use our hand relates to how Hashem is using, is expressing himself. I want to quote from you from, from the Tanya, but from Rabbi Moshe, I think it's Moshe, oh no, Mayer, Rabbi Mayer Ibn Gabe. And I want to just quote for you what he says about using anthropomorphic terms um, for Hashem. It kind of just gives us a really great summary of that. I'm going to read it from inside because it's a quote. Okay, so it says, while, while the physical reference to God in scripture are not to be taken literally, they do nevertheless represent an extremely profound truth describing how God's light flows outward from him and reaches the creations. In fact, our physical features were created in the image of much higher qualities that are totally non-physical and which man cannot understand. Our organs are thus a reminder of the spiritual emotions above. Okay, this is a whole amazing topic to delve into, which we're not going to do right here. But it's so important to understand that we are created in the image of God, right? So although our God doesn't have eyes like we have eyes and a mouth, and but what it's representing is the spiritual aspect of, of what our eyes are representing, of what our mouth is representing, what our hands are representing, okay? So basically what we're saying is that while there, basically our physical organ our physical organ is a, a sign and a reminder of the emanation that it represents, okay? So the spirituality or the, <clears throat> the role that our hands and our mouth and our eyes and our ears represent is, is reminding us of the spiritual power behind that, okay? So the same thing like when we talk about divine speech um, in connection to human speech, what we're talking about is the act of disclosure, okay? So just like human speech is an act of disclosure, right? Before, like, before I speak my thoughts, you don't know what's going on inside my head, 
right? It's an it's a it's a revelation. So so too for God, speech is an act of disclosure, which is why we refer to God creating the world through speech. He was expressing it was he was disclosing something. He was revealing something, expressing something. Okay, so <clears throat> now. Um, what happens though? So God creates the world through speech, but obviously we, we have talked about this in many different ways. And we're going to continue talking about this because it's a never ending subject. God cannot shine his light openly without any kind of diminishment, right? Because it, it we wouldn't be able to exist. Um, we would not be able to that's like nothing exists outside of God, but we have a reality, right? That God created us to think that we have a reality to accomplish something in this world, right? So the, the God's divine light goes through many, many, many profound diminishments, okay? And it travels through all the many different spiritual worlds until it's it's here in this world, okay? So we learned last chapter, right, that God diminishes Himself so to speak, right? Not, well, we'll get to that in a minute, but let's take that at face value for now. God diminishes himself, so to speak, to make space for the world, right? If he didn't make himself smaller, there would be no space for the world to be, okay? So even though, we talked about this last chapter, even though God remains exactly the same as he was before he diminished himself, right? So if he would see himself, he sees himself the same way. When he Remember we said when he looks at us in the world, it's a reflection of him, right? He sees himself not as a diminishment, right? But it's for us to grasp. The diminishment is in our eyes, right? In our eyes so we can be in this world, so we can grasp, grasp so we can understand the, the world, the diminishment, that symptom is very real, right? It does exist for us, but not in God's eyes. He doesn't see himself as diminished when he looks at us. He sees us, us as a reflection of him, okay? So there are many different varieties and levels of diminishment, right? Because there's many different creations and many different um, beings, right? So you, obviously the energy of a rock is going to be very different than a plant or an animal or a human, right? So all of it is a diminishment of God, a, a rock, a, a, a animal, a plant is all comes from God, right? It's all God, but it, it has different levels of diminishment, right? So depending on the divine energy that's required to keep this thing into existence, <clears throat> that's how, um, the, that's what the level of diminishment looks like. And it has to be a perfect fit for its recipient, right? So it's, I mean, it's all, if you think about it, it's very fascinating. Like we're, Right. We're, remember, we're, we're under this umbrella of the non-duality of Hashem and understanding how nothing exists outside of Hashem. And then in that umbrella, we're talking about symptom and diminishment, which allows things to, to exist on a certain reality. And every, every object in this world is tailor-made. And everything has the exact amount of godliness inside of it for its need and its purpose 
right? So it's all, I don't know, I find it so cool. So the concept of God's diminishment basically helps us understand and sheds light on the question on if we're talking about a non-dual universe, right, where everything is God, how could evil exist, right? Um, can I ask a question? Sure. Hi, it's, Ra it's Raquel. Hi. Um, is there an intuitive way that you understand this idea of, like, more or less of God in something? Like, yeah. that quantitativeness of it? Like, is there a way that you have an yes, intuition on that? Absolutely. It's such a good question. How I would, how I'm able to reconcile it in my mind, and Tanya talks about it is, so everything obviously is God, right? And everything is uh, a projection of God's energy. The question is, is, uh, and actually we're going to get to it later in the chapter of, you know, where a particular entity is getting God's life force or not. But what I would review it as, as the concept of diminishment is like, if you would view it as um, sheer curtains, okay? A bunch of sheer curtains covering over something. And if you have enough sheer curtains, it turns opaque, right? So different things have different amount of curtains over them. So you have this like source and this like, um, what's uh, the, the, the foundation of everything is godliness. The question is, how many curtains does it have covering over it? How many um, levels of diminishment and got and 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 like it's like the express train and the local train right how many stops did it make till it got to this world um and which then you know shows us like how how much covering over does it have right so we're gonna get to that so it's almost like more of a hiddenness than like a shrinking uh, absolutely exactly it's not a shrinking of godliness it's a concealment of godliness. Very, very awesome distinction, right? Um, so now, so we're actually going to get right into this talking about evil, right? Because if we're talking about that God is, is, is non-dual, right? Everything is godliness. How does evil exist in the world? But because we're beginning to understand the concept of symptom of diminishment, we're able to now grasp and understand how evil exists in this world, right? So what happens is that there's such a great um, diminishment and hiding of the face of God. It's, it's so great and so profound that it allows impure things and klipos, remember we use the word klipa, the shell, um, and, and sitra achra, which we're going to explain, which means the other, um, it allows it to exist because the diminishment is so great, right? So what does it mean? It means that evil, what, what's the trajectory of evil is that it, it had to go through so many rungs, right? It went through so much concealment, so much, you know, diminishment of godliness that it, it almost like you, you don't, the godliness is unrecognizable. It's not, you don't see it. And it's, it's so, hidden that it expresses itself as evil and ungodly right and um it's 
it, 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 it's so hidden that it, it barely resembles its source, right? Like you can hardly trace it back to anything godly, right? And um, in this like highly diluted state, evil can draw from the light, but we're gonna talk about from where is this light coming from, okay? And where we're gonna, okay, here, here's, where, here's where we're going. In the second commandment, right, it says, do not serve other gods. The term that it uses is Elohim Acherim, okay? Elohim, gods, Acherim, other, okay? Another, um, another way to translate Acher or Acherim, Acher, the root word Aleph Chas Resh is behind, okay? The backside, behind. So basically we're kind of using a play on words as other gods, Elohim Acherim, are not just other gods, but they're also getting their energy from the backside of God, okay? The, the negative force, it, it obviously isn't coming from God's face because God's face is completely hidden, um, but it's coming metaphorically. Remember, all these terms are metaphorically coming from the backside of God. Now, what does this mean? Um, it's kind of like, if you would have to give someone something against your will, right? You have to give something to someone or you, you know, you know, in war times, you have to, you know, give something to your enemy spoils or, you know, whatever you're going to, it's like throwing something over your shoulder to give something to someone that you need to, but you really don't want to, right? So you're not going to face the person. You're not going to make a connection with the person that you're giving them something to because you don't like them and you don't want to give it to them, but you have to give it to them for whatever circumstances. So you throw it behind you, right? So this is a perfect analogy of how Hashem um, sustains evil in this world. Okay. He doesn't look at it face to face. He doesn't want anything to do with it, but he needs to have evil in this world. And we're going to get to why, right? But we need, we need to have evil in this world and it needs to be sustained by God because nothing exists outside of God, right? We're not, you know, there's no, um, you know, other existence that's allowing evil to exist. It's all existing from God, but it's from God's backside. He's throwing it over his shoulder. He's giving them like, you know, like against his will, he's sustaining evil. Okay. So when we say Elohim Acherim, or we use the word Sitra Achra, Acher, right? The, that same root word, we're saying it's the other right? It's other, not only because it's other gods or other, but it's also getting their, it's energy from the backside of God. Okay. So, um, obviously, so it's, it's not coming from, from God's face, right? Because, um, and obviously we know God doesn't have an actual face, right? But what does a face represent? What does someone's face represent? It means it's, it's, when God shows his face, it's telling us, what is it telling us? It's telling us it's God's genuine desire and will. Like when you see God's face or when you're getting energy from God from the front side of him, it's because it's his innermost will and desire for this thing to exist. So um, 
and, and it, it's something good, right? God wants to interact with this. He's showing his face. He, he wants this to be so it's good. It's positive. It's holy, right? All those things are getting energy from God's face. Now, and evil is getting energy from God's backside because it's not God's will to a certain extent. There's actually two reasons why you might desire something, right? One reason is because you really desire it, right? It's your innermost will and you desire it. And the second thing is um, it's a means to an end. You need to do this thing for to for this to a, to a, to be accomplished. So like a very very silly example is like an alarm clock, right? Nobody desires to be woken up by an alarm clock in the morning, right? It's not anyone's innermost desire. But a person desires to get up and feel accomplished and get to work, right? So your alarm clock, yes, you need the alarm clock, but it's not because you want the alarm clock inherently, it's a means to an end. Right? So evil is the same thing with Hashem. God forbid, God does not want evil to exist in this world as a desire on its own, but evil needs to exist for a means to an end. Okay. Now, um, what is that means to an end? Why does God want to sustain these negative forces if it doesn't represent his ultimate true will? Like, why do we want evil to exist in this world? Right. Um, and I'm sure this is not rocket science. We, it is not, I'm not going to tell you here a revolutionary concept, but it is a fundamental concept of why we're here in this world, right? Um, which is we need to have free choice, okay? We need to choose God. And um, basically, our making our decisions meaningful, right? We need to make our decisions meaningful since the consequences of our actions are um, a result of our free choice, okay? So if, and, and then ultimately God derives the most pleasure when we suppress sitra achra, when we suppress the other, right? So we, there must be evil in this world because if we were in this world with no choice, right? Everything was good. So obviously when we connect to God, it's because there's nothing else to do. We're not doing it out of our, out of our own free will. What is, what is the value in that? Okay. What is the value in that? So evil, so God has to sustain evil. He has to sustain the other through his backside. He means we know that he's not doing this because it's his innermost desire and will he's doing it as a means to an end, right? What's the, what's the end? The end game is that us humans in this world move through life with choices, right? We have this in front of us and we have this in front of us. And when we consciously choose something godly, we are suppressing the sitra achra, we're suppressing the other, and we are making a godly choice out of our own free will. And that's the purpose of this world. That's what makes God happy. Okay. Now, the concept of free will is big. Okay. We're not, this is not where we're focused right now. Like I'm sure we all have a lot of questions about what is it? Is it really free will? As a free will, all that kind of stuff. That is that, and I don't even have answers to all those questions. And I honestly, I don't think anybody really does. But the bottom line is, is that we all can agree that we move through our life with choices, right? We get to decide 
what we do. There are a lot of things that are out of our control, but there are a lot of things that are in our control. And what's in our control, the only reason why we have choices is because the other exists. And the only way other exists is through the sustenance of God, right? It has to be sustained by God, right? We know that. Um, but we now understand that this is not God's innermost desire and will. He sustains this through his backside, right? It's, he's throwing this energy over his shoulder because it's only a means to an end, okay? So any questions? From, uh, yes. So I far. just want to say that if I understood correctly, because this is my feeling about it, everything and anything that God does and doesn't do is to teach us to be the best ethical person yes. that can be. Absolutely. It's all about ethics. It's all about, it's all about, yes, de developing our relationship with God, right? And I, I, we're going to get into this. Uh, we're going to talk about this so much more. Uh, it will keep bringing this up, but you know, God is not out to get us, right? He's not here. Even when we go through challenges and every single one of us go through challenges, our challenges are tailor-made for us, right? And we, and we get to move through life making choices. And you know what? We're not always going to make the best choice. We are going to stumble. We are going to fall. We are going to get trapped. You know, those things will happen, but none of it is ever you're never like a lost cause. Nothing is ever doomed. We always have the ability to make choices, to, um, to really make godly choices. And when we, wh why I think I'm so passionate about Tanya to begin with and why I think it is such a practical, it's not esoteric and lofty, although it's taking really lofty concepts, but the more we know, the you know, and the more we understand the inner workings of God, the better tools we have. So if we move through life, knowing that evil is here and the struggles are here, so we can make godly choices with our own free will, like how much more enjoyable and positive is that than thinking that God is out to get us, or there's evil in this world. And there, you know, it's just every, you know, there's bad and we have no understanding or concept behind how all these things come to play. So even if we're not going to make the best choices all the time, just the knowledge of knowing that everything comes from God, number one. And number two, we have the power for choice. That's why God put us in this world. He didn't want us to just to be good because there's no other way to be right? It's not valuable. So I just, I think that that lends itself to a much richer and, and deeper existence, right? Instead of just moving through life and like bumping around and having this thing sway you that way. Like we have the ability to be super intentional and that's, and that's what I love. Okay. Any questions before we continue? All right. So, um, so we now know that the negative forces, the Sitra Akhra, are receiving its energy from, not from God's face, because remember, what does God's face represent? Inner desire, true will, right? So the, the Sitra Akhra, the, all the um, negative forces are receiving its energy from God's backside, right? The Tanya is going to now explain that not only 
is the source of godly energy different than things that are holy, but it's also the way they receive their energy is also different, right? So all negative forces receive their energy from a different source than holy, but not only that, it's they receive it in a different way as well. And what is that? Um, basically, since the energy of God's face does not rest at all on the Sitra Achra, okay? Um, basically, even the energy source that's coming from behind isn't really either absorbed within the negative force. It kind of encircles it. Okay, so basically, basically what we're saying is that even the energy that the Sitra Achra receives from God's backside doesn't even become properly absorbed in it. Okay, so the Sitra's Achra's life energy is largely like kind of trapped, right? And it's split off and basically it's like anti-life. Okay, it's like anti-life. So what are we saying that the not only is Sitra Achra getting its energy from the backside, the little godliness that the Sitra Achra is getting, it doesn't even get absorbed within it. It kind of encircles it, okay? So if Sitra Achra is anti-life, right, um, how could it possibly exist, right? If it's, how it, where is it getting its source from? If it's not even being absorbed within it, how is it even ex existing, right? Because the tiny glimmer of light and the like minuscule amount of life energy that the Sitra Achra does get is enough for it to exist. So basically it's absorbing the teeniest amount of energy just to sufficient enough for its existence and the rest of it remains exiled, right? So what does that mean? That's why it exists and it exists in such a negative way because there, it doesn't even recognize the godliness within itself, okay? It's so far removed from godliness that it just, it doesn't even recognize on its own that it's coming from godliness, okay? So basically, <clears throat> excuse me, the Sitra, and, that, and Sitra Achra is referred to as other gods, because really what's, what's going on here is it's idolatry, okay? Because what happens is, is that the Sitra Achra resists any godly energy, okay? It's resisting any godly energy. And even the energy, right? Because it's resisting it, it's not even getting absorbed. And even the teeniest amount of godly energy that it does absorb, it remains exile. And it's unrecognizable to even the Sitra Achra itself. And what is that? In simple terms, it is idolatry. It's the denial of God. Because what this evil is doing, it's like, no, no, no. You don't exist for me. I push you away. And even the tiniest little bit is, that I, does absorb in me is, is exiled within me, which means that I deny the fact that I come from God, that I'm godly, okay? And so why does the Sitra Achra deny God? As we mentioned earlier, that what is the source 
of rejection of God is ego, right? When we're unwilling to surrender ourselves and our ego, that's when we think we exist outside of God. You with me? So basically, on the contrary, rather than humbling and surrendering, surrendering itself to God, Sitra Ahra makes itself higher and bigger, right? And it just says, no, I, I don't accept God. I don't think he, there, he's in me and part of me. And the ego gets bigger and, the, and God gets pushed away. And what is that? It's denying the existence of God, which is idolatry. Okay. So that's why our sages say that an inflated ego is equivalent to actual idolatry. So non-surrender, when you don't surrender to God, right? It hardens your ego. And then you have a really strong sense of separateness, right? Which is a denial of God's presence within you and every other existing thing. And I'm going to say that again, because none of us here um, are idol worshipers, right? But in our daily life, we experience this. When we don't surrender to godliness and we harden our ego and we think we're in control and we know better, right? What does that do? It tells us that we are denying God's presence before us and, 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 and within us and denying God is idolatry. So for example, I'm going to give you an example from my own life. When we're in a situation where um, something is out of our control, right? And we want it to be different. And I don't have a specific example because this happens to me like a hundred times a day. Um, and we want something to be different and we think we can control it. And we, we don't surrender ourselves and we have anxiety because we think we're going to control something. And we don't fully trust that God knows what he's doing. And there is a plan, there's a bigger plan and we fight it. That is an example of our ego getting in our way, right? Our, we think we're separate from God. We think we have control over the master plan, but we don't. And when we have, when that ego gets bigger, it push, it leaves less room for God. And then we, it, then we walk through life thinking that we're a separate existence and we have complete autonomy. Right? Does, has anyone ever experienced that before? Of course, because that's how God created us. He wants us to experience that because he wants us to do the work, right? So it's a little bit of a catch-22, right? God created us in a way that allows us to have these thoughts and allows us to think that we're separate and we donate we, and we exist outside of God. And our work is to come back to our source and remember that we're not separate from God, right? So that is um, where... Like when we, when we um, say the second commandment that don't serve other gods, right? Nowadays, like idolatry used to be a really big thing, but nowadays we're not serving other gods, right? But we sort of are. What it really means is that when you don't fully embrace God as, as in you and part of you and, and, and who's the master of everything, we automatically are serving other gods. We're serving ourselves. We're serving our ego, 
right? So this second commandment is very applicable to us today. Maybe not in the um, most, you know, um, uh, what's it called? Like face value kind of way, but we all have our idolatry. We all have the things that we serve. We all have the things that veer us off the understanding that God is everything. Okay. So, um, so this conviction, um, that God exists, right. But you're independent from him. This is the basis of, basically, this is the basis of idolatry that you believe God exists, right? You're not a God denier. You're not denying that God exists. You believe he exists, but you believe that you're separate from him, that you're a separate identity from him, which is the source of idolatry. It's not yet a complete um, denial of, you know, you're not denying God. It's not a complete um, denial, right? Um, it's just that these individuals express a belief that God exists, but maintain that he doesn't have a direct involvement in the world right? He's not involved in the world. He's like, he's up there, right? He exists. He created the world. He has some kind of involvement, but he's not involved in our day-to-day -day lives, right? That is the, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not the, ba the basis or the, yeah, the, the root of idolatry. That thought is what allows idolatry to exist. It's a root of idolatry. It's not God denying God's existence. It's just Denying the fact that there's other, that there's, that there's, that God is everything and there's, and there's separate existences, right? There's other gods, there's other things, right? So, um, so even though these individuals, right, do not deny God completely, but they do perceive themselves as independent beings and autonomous entities, right? And in this way, they separate themselves from God's holiness, right? And they don't completely surrender themselves to God. Okay. And I want to read you a quote from the Baal Shem Tov um, about this topic. It says, the Baal Shem Tov says um, on the verse that you turn away and worship other gods, right? The Baal Shem Tov interprets it that you turn away as soon as you turn your attention away from attaching to God, you will worship other gods, okay? So basically, as soon as we turn away from the concept that God is everything, he's non-dual, right? It's a non-dual world. That leads us, that's an automatic, like, um, straight path to idolatry. Because as soon as you believe that there's things that exist outside of God, that's believing in the other, right? And that's not non-dual, okay? Um, so, and as we've mentioned in chapter six, we mentioned this in a chapter about, I think it was, chapter six is about Torah study and chapter 19, which we talked about um, that the fact that holiness rests on something that is completely surrendered to it, okay? That's where holiness rests, when something is completely surrendered to godliness, okay? So therefore, these negative forces are called, um, 
it's actually really interesting. It's they're called like um, divided mountain peaks in the Zohar. Sitra Akhra is called divided mountain peaks. Why? Because it's the perception of separateness and division. Okay, so this non-surrendered like self-image is is a denial of God's non-duality. Okay, so when we have this inflated self-image and we think that we are existing outside of God and we are autonomous and separate, that denies the non-dual nature of Hashem, okay? And really, in God's presence, everything is zero, right? And all existence is, is gen genuinely voided of any separate identity of God, right? And how does God sustain everything? God, in order for anything to exist, remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, in order for anything to exist, it has to be constantly be recreated into existence by God from something from nothing, right? So how could you think you're separate? If God stopped wanting to exist, if God stopped uttering your the will for you to exist, you would cease to exist. Every second, every millisecond, we are being created something from nothing because it's God's will to be here. Okay. And that's where this chapter ends. We are God. We, we need to surrender ourselves to God. There's no other way. There's no other way. We are constantly being recreated by God, something from nothing. In a blink of an eye, we could cease to exist. Okay, so that's how this chapter ends. Um, next chapter, we're going to talk about how we connect to God through Torah and mitzvot, which is going to be exciting. Um, but any questions before we do a meditation? And in the meditation, I will um, share with you some of the uh, points to ponder that I want you to take home and think about, right? Kind of summarizing this chapter, we'll do through the meditation. Any questions though, before we get, before I start the meditation? I have one. Um, yes. I hope I can phrase it properly. Um, regarding the very last part that you spoke about, God is constantly, all the time, creating or else everything would cease. Right. What about on Shabbat? I don't know if this is a stupid question or not. No, first, what about of, all, on Shabbat? first of all, let's make something very clear. There's no such thing as stupid questions ever, ever, never. That's how we learn. It's a very good question because we don't create on, on Shabbos, right? Our, as humans, we don't create on Shabbos. And, and then it also says God um, rests, right? On the seventh day, he rested, right? So I, it's a very good question. I don't know exactly the answer and I will find out for you. But my, my initial thought is that nothing, you know, God created everything for the first time, mm -hmm. right? In those six days, he didn't create anything new on Shabbos, right? Nothing new was created on Shabbos, he rested. But in order for the, right, like we're saying, but in order for the world to continue to exist, it, there is this inherent creative process that God continues to will us to exist. Now, I don't know, like, so for us, we don't create on Shabbos. I don't know how to translate that in godly terms, like what does it mean that God is constantly creating us and willing us, to, 
and maybe it's not creating, maybe it's willing us to exist, right? Um, and, and kind of reconcile that with Shabbos. It's a very good question, actually. I don't know the answer, but I will find out for you and I will come back with it next week. Sure, thank you so much. Yes. Okay, any other questions? Okay, we'll do the meditation. I'll, um, we'll sum, I'll be able to summarize in little points in the meditation. If there's questions after that, we still have some time for that too, okay? Then we'll get comfortable. Take a deep breath in through your nose, out through your mouth. Just let your body go, like follow your breath. Don't try to do something that's not natural. Follow the natural rhythm of your breath in through your nose, out through your mouth. I also want you to try to visualize um, if you are holding any tension inside your body, kind of see if you can feel where that is, right? For everyone, it's different. And then when you locate the source of any tension in your body, just imagine this beautiful, bright light shining and melting away any of your residual tension that you might be holding in your body. Just visualize it. Can you visualize it? How does it make you feel? Do you feel looser, relaxed? Okay, hopefully our body's feeling a little bit more relaxed. And I want to bring your mind to some of the main points we talked about today. Okay. Everything in the universe receives God's life energy in a way that is tailor made for that thing. This is an underrated concept and it's really powerful. Everything receives the energy that it needs specifically for them and for that thing. It's tailor-made. Think about that. That's why a plant looks different than an animal, different than a human, different than a rock, right? And God genuinely desires to give good things life energy. And he gives that energy through his face. Bad things and negative forces are sustained also by God's energy, but from the backside. Because it's he, he gives it not from his inner will. It's just a means to an end, right? Evil exists only for a means to an end. What is that means to an end? To give us free choice. That is why there is one reason why evil exists in this world, to give us free choice.
Okay, and the final thing I want you to go home with is that negative forces are unconscious of the fact that God sustains them, right? They're, it, it's so hidden within them that they don't even realize themselves that they're being sustained by God. Why? Because their arrogance and ego lead them to believe that they're independent from God. So idolatry in the non-dual sense, basically idolatry is to deny God's presence inside of you. What does idolatry mean to us nowadays? If we deny God's presence inside of us, that's believing in other, and that doesn't work. I'll give you a minute or two just to like, let you think about that. Recognize like, do you feel like what sensations come up for you when you think about things like this? Okay, bring your attention back to your breath. Let your mind go. Focus on your breath in through your nose, out through your mouth. Start to kind of recognize or feel the sensations around you. Um, noises, smells. Feel the sensation of your body. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. Okay, I think I see here that someone wanted me to repeat the last sentence. Yeah, the last sentence I said is idolatry in the non-dual sense, which idolatry basically for us in our life today is to deny God's presence within you. Do you deny God's presence inside of you? You're believing that there's other, and that's idolatry. You're believing there's something that exists outside of God. Okay. Any questions on this chapter or in general? Yes. This is uh, pretty, pretty much in general, uh, but about the Tanya, which you taught that meditation, to meditate on God, if one, for example, is constantly throughout the day and throughout the night and with everything that he is doing, he or she is doing, does not stop thinking of God. Um, like everything is pretty much God, God, God. They're like, no matter what I'm doing, I'm like, is that okay with God? Is this good? Yes. Does that mean I, how do I meditate? on God? Do I still need to meditate on God when everything for me is God? Well, first of all, I would say that's amazing. That's a, a level that most of us strive for. And I think um, that's basically the ultimate is if when, while you're doing your actions, while you're doing going about your day-to-day -day life, you're thinking about godliness. I think that's really the ultimate. I think it also doesn't necessarily, it's, I think it's, it's different to set aside a specific time. 
while you're not doing anything else and to think about God and then think about specific things about God. And the cool thing is, is that later in the Tanya, we're going to learn specific things to think about God, to create specific emotions. So what you're describing is just is going through life, thinking about God. Everything you do is, is in connection with God. You have God in your life, which is huge, which is really the ultimate. Then if, if there is a time where you want to create a specific emotion towards God, right? That takes a little bit more of a focused meditation. And you're going to be thinking about specific things in order to create that emotion. So we'll learn about that later in Tanya. So I think there's two there's two ways of meditating on God and they're not mutually exclusive. They both should happen. When you're davening, yeah. When yeah. you're davening, for example, um, at the morning prayers or Shabbat, for example, um, doing the Shabbat prayers. And if I start crying, that's because I'm very emotional with what I'm, with what I'm reading. Right. You know, I'm like, I'm right. feeling, I'm so feeling a lot of people, right. And a lot of people, when they pray, they're praying because it's an obligation and they're not necessarily thinking about God. Right. So prayer is an absolutely wonderful time to use that time to meditate on God. So, I mean, you're ahead of the game. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, yeah. So we're going to get to now. So now we, we touched upon meditation and we, we veered off from meditation because we want something instant. And then we're going to go back and many, many, many chapters talk about meditation and specific meditate, meditations to, to have specific mantras, specific things we're going to be thinking about to create specific emotions. Great. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Okay, guys. So this is what I'm thinking. I think we're going to go, the most of the feedback I got was to go through the summer. Um, I know it's a very hectic time and kids aren't, you know, kids are all over the place and there's traveling, but we'll be here. Um, we'll be here same time. There will be a couple weeks where I will have to skip and not be here. But in general, as a general rule, we're just going to continue through the summer and if there's a week that I need to miss, you all will, will know. And, and, and as always, it's always going to be recorded. So if you miss a week or if you can't be there, it's always there for you to catch up later. All right. God bless you. All right.